1: Hi, everyone. Welcome to our latest episode of the Latin American Studies channel. I'm your host, Minnie Saunee, and I'm a professor of Hispanic studies at the University of Delhi in India. Today, we're going to be talking about a book by Rebecca Jansen titled, Unholy Trinity, State, Church, and Film in Mexico, published by the State University of New York Press in 2021. Rebecca Janssen is Associate Professor of Spanish and Latin American Literature at the University of South Carolina. Her present book deals with film and religion in Mexico, and she says in the introduction that her aim is not to promote religious devotion, rather it is to research how films critically engage with their context through imagery. Her book is moving to a telling destination. But first, Dr. Jensen, tell us about your personal trajectory and educational background, as well as how your interest was awakened in Mexican Catholicism.
0: Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your channel, Um, and it's wonderful to be able to meet you virtually today. So as you said, I'm at the University of South Carolina in Columbia, South Carolina. And I have been a professor for nearly nine years. Um, I was a professor for four years at Bluffton University in Ohio, also in the United States. And in 2017, I started at my current institution. Um, And in this time of being a professor, as well as in my PhD, which I did at the University of Toronto um, and completed in 2013, I've always been interested in the idea. In the theme of religion, how it appears in literature particularly uh, was one of the starting points of my dissertation, even though that is not how it ended up. Um, and then in my project on Mennonites and Mormons. But again, that was really focused on like um, specific groups of people in Mexico who are definitely not the majority religions in the country. Um, but I uh, when I was in Mexico, which is, I talk a little bit about this in the introduction to my book is that it's religion is um, different there than it is in my home in Canada. I'm from Ottawa, uh, Canada's capital. And in Mexico there's images um, or like statue representations of religion anywhere and everywhere. And churches um, are open to the public. So It's a little bit more present. Of course, that also has to do with how people live their lives um, more in the private sphere of their homes, where I'm from, versus more space in public areas in Mexico. But you know what? Why are people religious? Why are people doing any of these things? What does it mean? What does it mean when in one place um, more rituals occur in public, and what does it mean when in... In Mexico particularly, although this is certainly common in other countries um, and in traditions outside of Catholicism, it's like, why are there these official things that the religious leaders are telling you you should be doing in order to live a good life and end up in the place that you would like to end up in in the afterlife? Um, And then why are people doing these other things? Or why, for example, in Mexican Catholicism um, is connection with saints particularly important and the Virgin Mary, particularly her apparition as a Virgin of Guadalupe, that that's much more important than um, in some cases, the sacraments that Catholic leaders tell Catholic people are the most important. Um, And I think that because all of this, even though the majority of Mexico is Catholic on a census, might not necessarily be particularly religiously devout um, in their personal lives, that there is a broad sense of respect or understanding that religion is just around, um, and that it is typically one religion. And so, what do, what happens when that is the context in a given country? So, I wanted in this book, I wanted to move from the super specific uh, groups that I talked about—the Mennonites that are related to my own background um, and Mormons who I have come to know and understand their religious tradition, um, as well as having Mormon friends and colleagues, that those are pretty small expressions to move to something bigger and how it appears in one type of culture in film rather than in um, archival documents or literature or kind of snippets here and there. And what we can use these films and this majority religion um, as well as minority religious practices that are represented in film, what can that really tell us about Mexico? Uh-huh.
1: Okay, so uh, you detail in your book how the state in Mexico has been remarkably active in creating new institutions to train filmmakers, and yet the films are critique of you know the quote the hand that feeds them, so to speak. Tell us about this phenomenon.
0: This is something that I have found fascinating throughout my research in Mexico. And that when I talk about this with my students, um, I think it's a crucial part of understanding how a country that has a communist background like Mexico, although certainly not in the sense of the Soviet Union or East Bloc countries, um, that there's an impressive funding of culture that we don't have the same familiarity with. And so The Mexican state is deeply involved in funding the film industry and in training film directors and in funding film schools, either uh, film training at the National University or the Centro de Capacitación Cinematográfica. So the, I guess, workshops for film training. Um, And of course, that looks different in different time periods that I discuss in the book. But the most important part is, to me, is that um, in every time period in Mexican history, even in the neoliberal era where uh, the government, where government grants make it explicit that a person can, must seek alternative sources of funding in addition to um, federal government or state government grant funding, is that the state, not in the sense of Mexico's, uh, types of government that are lower than a federal level, but in a broader sense of all of these entities that are vaguely related to the government and that succeed in holding a certain type of power and influence over the population, that this is always there. And it's always in the background of film funding, uh, be it in art films that I look at in chapters two and three of the book, or in these massively popular films that I look at in chapters one and two, um, And that um, filmmakers and actors also are part of systems that are created when there's this type of broader funding uh, through the government, through different types of unions and unofficial star systems. Um, And this is not, of course, uniquely Mexican in terms of its background, but the way it manifests, of course, differs across times and across countries. And yet the films that I'm looking at, when I'm examining this religious imagery, I'm talking about how they're using like representation of a priest to criticize a president, Um, but the priest would be a recognizable leader and easier to criticize. And so, or in some cases using very, like you don't even need to use that much critical thinking to see that it's a clear criticism um, of church leaders and um, important federal government leaders like the president um, or people who were involved in um, massacring students in 1968, for example. So to me, that's really curious. Like why and how did they manage to do this? Um, In some cases it is much more subtle. In other cases, perhaps the audience was not so great or perhaps the government did not expect when they were giving money for this film that the audience would be great. Um, But I think it's an interesting tension that we see um, in films and in literature and other forms of art uh, for artists to be able to continue their craft. um, But at the same time, wanting to be able to make this very valid criticism of injustice that's happening in their country with government funding.
1: The first chapter of the book, uh, which is titled Negotiating a Place for Religion in a Developing Economy, deals with the golden age of Mexican film. As you make clear, the relations of the Mexican state and the Catholic Church have veered from fractious to accommodating. In the films you discuss in your book, you state that references to religion are for an audience that could thus understand the film better in a post-revolutionary scenario. What was the kind of society that a film like Maria Candelaria was speaking to, for example, and then you can tell us about some of the other films also. I must say that, uh, you know, the films that you mention are fascinating and also the connections that you draw, they're never predictable. So t- thank you for that. <laughs> um,
0: well, thank you. So in the first chapter, I look at two films that are fairly well-known, Maria Candelaria and Río Escondido, as well as El Seminarista, which also has very famous Mexican actors um, from the time period. And these films are part of what's called the golden age of Mexican film or like Cine de Oro. So in some sense, films from the most famous period of Mexican film production in the early 20th century uh, when melodrama was very popular, Um, These family types of dramas with um, over-the-top acting and music that enhances the reader's, the viewer's experience of the film. Um, Maria Candelaria is a film about a young woman who... Would like to be able to be married in a church, um, but doesn't have enough money to do that. And so is doing all kinds of things to raise money, notably in this film, um, involves raising a pig. And she lives in Xochimilco, which is now very much part of Mexico City at that time was a little bit further south of Mexico. Um, And it's part of the city where things are still connected by canals that were, um, this is an important part of the film that a lot of action happens in canoes on canals. Um, And when this film was released, Mexico was still predominantly Catholic. Um, I mean, it still is. uh, And the country was just finishing up a really intense period of conflict between the government and the federal government and the Catholic church. Um, when Mexico became an officially secular country in 1917 with its constitution, um, which was reiterating 19th century events, uh, that aligned Mexico's constitution with many other constitutions, such as that are modeled on the French constitution. Um, anyway, there was a war that, um, Cristero War between 1926 and 1929. And in the 1930s, there was ongoing violence that related to the imposition of free public education for all Mexicans. And only in 1940, the president-elect, Avila Camacho, acknowledged that he was a believer um, in the press. He had uh, apparently initially said that he was a Catholic um, and then revised his interview before it went into print. Um, so there's all of this background of a lot of conflict, um, between state and church. And when this film comes out, it's very much in a time of tension when people might feel like their religious practices are not recognized, are not permitted by the government and for like very good reason, um, and in the film, the main character is maligned by the religious people in her town because her mother had been a sex worker. But the priest is very kind to her um, and the priest encourages her, for example, to have her animal blessed. I assume this is on the Feast of St. Francis, or perhaps it could be a recreation of simply an entertaining event for a film. Um, but traditionally, St. Francis of Assisi is thought of as a saint saint. Who loved animals. And so, um, at least where I live, you'll see even now that that is a day where you can get your pets blessed in church. Um, So, there's important things that are happening for the main character of the film um, where she'll pray to a local shrine to the Virgin that is not located in a church, but she takes. A canoe and a canal to it, um, and also has really, um, moving moments inside of the church after her fiance is put in the local jail, um, and the local priest is comforting her at that time, um, but then in the end of the film, when, um, there is a mob scene It also takes place outside of the church. So it shows that the church has a lot of power, particularly on a local and rural level. Um, and on a national level, in spite of all of this conflict uh, that had been happening in the previous decades, that many Mexican people, like these images of Catholicism were still really powerful and were able to communicate kind of more quickly some ideas that the film might have been wanting to present. So, uh,
1: now, in the very interestingly titled chapter, Catholicism at its Wits End, you analyze how President Luis Echeverria competed with the church for the attention of the Mexican film goer, And hence the films produced with state support teamed with brothels and sex workers all mixed up with priests and the church. Do you think that these films did not reflect reality, but rather the politics of the fil- field of film production?
0: So... One thing that comes to mind um, with this question is the first time I was teaching an intro to Latin American literature class, my students really noticed that there were a lot of sex worker characters, um, which seemed to be more than the amount of sex workers that are in a population at any time period in any place. So I think there's some kind of fascination with this perhaps it comes out of Catholicism and Catholic moral ideas about sex, um, or perhaps it comes out of the, what can sometimes be a practice in a patriarchal society of, Oh, a man has, Oh, it has a wife. And that's going to be the um, allowed type of sex for women, uh, as long as it leads to motherhood. Um, and then, a man will seek pleasure outside of the heterosexual marriage relationship, um, that with this dichotomy as the ideal for men, perhaps that's why it's omnipresent in literature. But, um, this subgenre of films, uh, that I look at in the second chapter, um, of this book is, I look at three films in the chapter and two of them are like B type of movies or churros, um, so lower brow films, I guess you could say um, that focus on sex work and prostitution apparently there's an entire subgenre of priests and sex workers in this lowbrow film um, and of course priests are not supposed in the Catholic tradition um, in Mexico are not supposed to be having any type of sexual relationship with anybody so, I think the prohibition element um, makes it more interesting for viewers. And perhaps that's why um, they're more common than I can imagine that. Well, I have no proof one way or the other um, about whether this kind of thing was happening, but it makes for good films when everyone knows that it's not supposed to be happening. And so like the thrill, but not very racy type of film um, means that it can be viewed more broadly and be entertaining for everyone. Um, and in Mexico, the history of sex work is super interesting. Um, it's been permitted um, in certain times in the 20th century, in certain parts, for example, of Mexico City and like a red light district. Um, but of course, always with the tinge of the idea of sinfulness or doing something wrong. Um, And of course it would be the woman, never the man buying sex. Um, And of course that would be the only kind of sex work that would be happening. Um, And then the good moral people um, have the idea that they need to rescue the women who are sex workers. Um, And I think they show us that. I mean, Shows a lot of interesting things. So one of the films really is about this rescue idea, Las Chicas Malas del Padre Mendes, um, which is apparently, which is a film that is based on a true story of a young priest in Micho- in the state of Michoacán in Mexico, um, who wanted to do something good in his community, uh, in his work as a local priest. And so worked with some nuns to set up a type of rescue mission. Um, and over the course of the film, um, you know, mm, he gets the nuns to do all of the work and also one of the main characters um, who became pregnant after having sex with her boyfriend and then kind of went down the classic um, plot line uh, into a life of sex work, Um, married her boyfriend at the end of the film and the priest presides over this marriage. So it's in a Catholic church. So that is the ideal type of marriage. Um, Even though in Mexico, you need to be married in a religious and a secular context for it to be legal. Um, The religious context only counts for the religious part, no matter what religion it is. Um, So there's that film where it's, truly a rescue. And then the other film I look at plays with this idea of rescuing um, where um, the sex workers in the film actually rescue a priest. So there's two women who are in a car um, and they're driving with their clients somewhere. And they see this man at the side of the road and they're like, Oh, we should rescue him. Like people shouldn't be at the side of the road, which seems like a good thing to do. Um, And so they bring him back to their brothel and um, he recovers there uh, and they like find an ID card in his pocket that leads them to believe that he's a priest. Um, it turns out in the end that he's not actually a priest, that he had not um, been able to be ordained um, or had never finished seminary. But throughout the film, you see these women like feeding him. One of them leaves her bedroom so that Like, he can recover there, and he'll hear their confessions. So he's doing the things that priests do, although normally confessions are not taking place in a bedroom. Um, But the scenes where he's in this woman's bedroom, you also see that there's, like, a crucifix, and above the woman's closet, um, there's an altar. And in a very – to me, it's um, (coughs) – the best of like a personal altar because it's the saints and the virgin that are meaningful for her. And then there's lights that are flashing, like what here we would have as Christmas lights. But, um, so it's just playing with the idea of who can be rescued and who is actually the one with power in this context. Um, in that context, I think it's the madam who has the most power, um, over the women who are working Um, And she's the one who gets to decide if the priest is staying or if he's going and um, kind of finds a doctor on the side for him. And so um, it's turning around this idea a little bit, but still there's kind of the thrill of um, of having a priest in in a brothel, uh, even though the parts that are on screen are. Very uh, G rated that that have to do with the priest, at least. Um, So I think it's an easy way, in some ways, to comment on the corruption of certain types of leaders. Um, For example, a priest not even being an actual priest, just pretending so that he can get things, um, could comment on the way that people who are like deeply devout Catholic people, um, particularly in rural areas of Mexico, will do a lot for their local leaders uh, simply because they're the local Catholic leader, like the local priest. um. And in the case of the other film, it could show the good efforts, like Catholic charitable efforts. um, Although my interpretation of the film is that these rescue efforts are very paternalistic um, and sexist. Um, and especially in that case, it's really highlighting like that there's one kind of ideal family structure, and that is when it ends with a marriage in a Catholic church. And so that like all these things can happen, you can make mistakes, but then you're going to come back and do the what is understood as the right thing, um, both by the church and by the state, and using films to reiterate that type of messaging. Yeah.
1: Yeah, a lot of thoughts occur uh, to me after what you've said. For example, uh, you said right in the beginning that, you know, in certain films, there seem to be just too many sex workers in comparison to the population, and and I'm reminded of La Ley de Erodes, Uh, it's an incredible story that the only people that this uh, pre-official meets are these these sex workers they're the life of the film And and then and then the other thing is also i was wondering you know if they also might want to show now this is from a perspective which it comes from a reading of the bible but it's not a Catholic or Christian like Mary Magdalene is also part of the human family, Christian family right, so then that's also making sex workers acceptable as well, that there are all kinds of people in the world, right, the way Mary Magdalene was, so you just have to accept it and you know, you don't have to be judgmental about it so yeah, so what do you think could that be an interpretation as well or you don't think that's valid in the case of the uh, Catholic society.
0: I think it is because according to Catholic tradition, although it's not present in the Christian New Testament, um, there's the really strong idea that Mary Magdalene uh, was a prostitute um, and conflating her with another um, female character who like, breaks the uh, jar of perfume on Jesus's feet the Mary and Mary, no no it's not that Mary it's someone else. I was just reading a book about um, different women and their interactions with Jesus and so I I really think that the best message you could take from this is that they're like, oh these are human women doing a job and that we should be less judgmental. I think, especially in the case of Las Chicas Malas del Padre Mendes, in spite of my cr- criticism of it as being paternalistic, one of the messages is like, "Oh, these are people," and criticizing uh, more traditional views uh, that would denigrate these women. Um,
1: yeah, it's a more—it's like a kind of inclusive idea of society.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: That, that they're all kinds of fuss and also that the, you know, the proper little misses are not really that. <laughs> that's that's what Mexican films also try to tell you. That when the proper little miss has her moment, she does, <laughs> and she also does what the other one. I thought, you know, and also the other thing is the machismo of the Mexican male is always privileged in these films. It all centers around the man. <laughs> you see he's it's not except La Ley de erodes which is a woman-centric film but
0: uh, <laughs> yeah i think um like in both of the films i look at in this book that deal with sex work and priests like there's way more female characters but do i even know what their names are um i mean i could only find their names because I read criticism on the film, like they're not having conversation where they're named, um, or besides like one nun who works very closely with Padre Mendes, that the band is the star in both cases. Um, even though of course, women have a world outside of men that is not uh, like in, in both films it's pretty clear that there is something happening outside of the priest, but it's not on the film at all because it's not considered to be important. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. So, now, uh, in the third chapter, you talk about the complexity of Mexican Catholicism, the multiple religious heritages, and also how religiosity in Mexico takes important symbols from various origins, pagan, Jewish, Mexican. A film like Novia Quetevea discusses anti-Semitism in Israel. Tell us about these varied strands of Mexican cinema.
0: Um, So... The last chapter of the book, I look at three films, Novia Que Te Vea, uh, Angel de Fuego, and El Crimen del Padre Amaro. And so to answer this question, I'll talk about Novia Que Te Vea, Like a Bride, and Angel de Fuego, or Angel of Fire, um, as part of what was happening in the 1990s in Mexican film, um, where films began to show a little bit more of a varied religious landscape, um, this is in part because of a greater recognition of more types of religious expression beyond Catholicism or any type of Christianity. Um, but maybe this is simply because there are fewer devout Catholics in Mexico, uh, not necessarily that, the, in terms of numbers of faithful religious people or people who would check a box on a census has really increased percentage wise. Um, I think I think that one of the reasons why we have uh, the these films with the greater representation of religion beyond Catholicism is because we have women filmmakers and filmmakers from other backgrounds. Um, so the two films that I just mentioned are made by filmmakers with Jewish roots. And both of the women mention this part of their backgrounds in interviews. So Gita Schifter, who directs Novia Que and Dana Rotberg, who directs Agen de Fuego. I'll first speak a little bit about Novia Que because it shows us the history of Judaism in Mexico, um, but it shows us like more than one type of Judaism in Mexico, and it looks at a number of important debates within the Jewish community, particularly that were happening in the various time periods in the film. Um, I think it's a great film for a lot of reasons. It portrays Judaism, um, Ashkenazi, and Sephardic, so from Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and then from North Africa and the Middle East, uh, and how Jewish people from both of those geographical locations ended up in Mexico, starting in the 19th century uh, and moving on through the 20th in response to different types of anti-Semitism in the places where they were living before they came to Mexico. Um, And in the film, uh, the film is based on a novel by Rosa Nisan called Novia Kateva that is about the Sephardic Jewish community in Mexico. Uh, And in the film the director added something that might have been more familiar to viewers or would have been more from her background, at least. And so the film starts with one of the main characters, Oshinika Matarazzo, her grandparents coming to Mexico on the day that Charles Lindbergh was supposed to land there. Um, Their family member, who's supposed to pick them up, wasn't there. um, But they they spoke Ladino, uh, so the language of Jewish people who had their roots in Spain five centuries previous, which the film mentions like in the first five minutes that they still have this connection to Spain, even though their ancestors had been expelled from Spain. Um, and so they were able to communicate with someone in the train station who turned out to be Jewish and took them to his home. And then they were able to contact their relative who couldn't make it to the train station because of all of the, this stuff happening because of Charles Lindbergh landing in Mexico. Um, and then it moves through the childhood of the two main characters, Oshi Batarazzo um, and Rivka Groman um, and their experiences of casual and deliberate anti-Semitism um, in their childhoods, in their youth where they meet um, their experiences in a Zionist um, socialist youth camp, um, like a summer camp youth group type of thing, uh, the Hashomer Hatzair, and then as adult women, where one of them has married a Jewish man and one of them has married a Catholic man, um, who but has a Jewish family, and it ends with that. That sounds. Um, it ends in a synagogue. Um, and I think what we see in this film is really interesting for a lot of reasons. One of them is showing kind of parallel experiences between two different Jewish communities that at that time in Mexico City really had no contact with one another, like beyond casual contact. They had their own institutions. Um, like most immigrant groups, um people want to preserve their culture, language, and religion. And these two groups had the same religion, but different languages. So Yiddish and Latino. Um, and so different schools for their kids, um, and worshipped in different places. And yet the experiences that we see in the film and that are corroborated in the historical record are like the oshi, um, goes to a church with two women who work for her family with one woman who works for her family, um, as a domestic servant. And then one of this woman's friends who says, who makes comments about Jewish people and money, um, and asks Oshie not to tell her parents, um, that like she went to church. Um, and Oshie sees a statue of Jesus and it's a very Mexican church. And so, um, in comparison to Catholic churches I had visited in Canada and the United States, um, this is a lot more graphic. You can see like Jesus is literally dying. Like there's blood. Um, and oh, she feels bad, which as a normal human reaction to suffering of any kind. Um, and that that would be her reaction. And then later on in the film, there's a representation, um, in a play, of the crucifixion of Jesus uh, and during Holy week, which is common in some parts of Mexico, but it's saying that Jewish people killed Jesus, which again is like a classic anti-Semitic trope um, that she's experiencing. And her friends uh, in quotation marks are like, Oh, well, they don't mean it. But we know that when people have these attitudes that are saying so casually, um, the things that are the types of anti-Semitic violence Jewish people experience are only going to be exponentially worse. Um, and, and the film manages to capture all of these more casual kind of everyday things. There's a scene where Rivka is meeting her boyfriend Saavedra's family for the first time. Um, and she really tries to reframe. Um, they ask her, and they call her by the wrong name. Um, so Rivka would be a, a name with Hebrew roots. Um, and they try and make her name Spanish. And then a family friend asks like about the Jewish community in Mexico and this idea that they're overtaking Mexico. Um, and Rivka tries to reframe it Um and position herself and her community in mexico um, by aligning them with what she has been studying at university about uh different indigenous groups um and saying like that they are present in mexico that they have their languages and so can her community um and so there's this accumulation of what now we would call microaggressions uh, against the characters, the two main characters. Um, but then we also see a constant way that they're trying to assert their identity, um, both as Mexican and as Jewish women. Um, there's other instances of this um, where we see, for example, Rivka's uncle, Mayer, um, Who survived the Holocaust. Uh, He had according to the film been in Treblinka and he refuses to go um, to his local synagogue with the rest of his family even on the Yarsite so the day in the Jewish calendar that marks like the year anniversary of someone's death based on the day they had died in the Jewish calendar. Um, But for him it's very important that being jewish is still very important to him although not in a religious sense necessarily or not in a corporate religious sense um in, like in a group religious sense um because he invents his own ritual um that i think is really beautiful and really moving where he takes his family this would be a fifth case immediate family to an important place in downtown Mexico City to a statue in the middle of um, a roundabout, I guess, um, that marks Mexico's independence from Spain. Um, And where he goes every year on the year that he landed in Mexico, where his boat came into the port of Veracruz, um, which is a major port of entry in Mexico. And so he goes there every year and has a wreath that is like the kind that um, you might have at a funeral but it has a star of david on it and so this is obviously connecting something very mexican this is a like how they have flowers at funerals or for commemorations of many kinds although and then also something that is very particular to his own history and why he came to mexico seeking a place where he could live his life and practice his religion or not practice his religion however he wanted um, and so we see that he is profoundly grateful to be living in Mexico, um, although it doesn't focus on that character, that he must also be experiencing the same types of prejudice at, that are represented in the film. Um, another question or another part of the question uh, that you asked was about the question of Israel. So, um of the film are from the 1920s and parts are from the 1960s and then parts are from the 1980s and so the parts that are in the 1960s this is when israel uh was created in 1948 as um and so when the actions in the film were taking place it's relatively new um and mayed and rifka's father have an argument where his father is a Zionist. So in the sense of believing that this is a place where all that Israel is a place where all Jewish people should be living and has additional religious like in addition to existing religious meanings of places there. Um, whereas Maya believes that it's important to seek integration where you are um, that that will be the best path forward uh, that will allow Jewish people to live their lives, um, ideally without experiencing significant anti-Semitism. And then in the Zionist youth camp, um, which reinterprets Jewish history through an extremely socialist lens um, that talks about the bourgeois and proletariat Jewish people, and they're like teaching kids that this is how Jewish history should be. That that's also a strain of thought that I think at least now um, in the 21st century, we don't think about as much as being a current of thought associated with Israel. Um, that in addition to the Zionism, that there is a socialist element of that. And that in the film, the characters are trying to use the socialist part of something related to their religious tradition um, to connect with socialist movements that were happening in Mexico in the 1960s. So, the young people in the, the two main characters in the film and their friends and people they're dating um, use that as a way to connect to the broader youth movement in Mexico at the time. Um, so, there's really a lot happening in this film. Um, and it's. Um, I think it's really beautifully done because it shows um, the family structure in two similar but different uh, communities and also touches on really important questions of like who gets to belong in Mexico and the casualness that people make types of anti-Semitic comments and that having it on screen that people can see, I think, makes it harder to ignore. Um. But I think also this film um, being made by a Jewish filmmaker does something that films perhaps made more recently or perhaps made by non-Jewish filmmakers might not be able to make as easily, which is that anti-Semitism and criticism of the Israeli government are not synonymous um, or criticism of Zionism um, are not synonymous. And it, through the different scenes in the film, we can see that really clearly. Um, And I think
1: that's really important. Okay. So uh, El Crimen del Padre Amaro has been such a talked about film. You say it's a kind of allegory where the church is a synecdoche for the nation. Explain to us what you mean and how the narco world and the church are shown to be colluding here in the last few minutes that we have on the program.
0: Oh, yes. Um, this is the other film that I could talk about for a long time. Uh, so certainly the one that has the most publications. Um, so when I was looking, um, in the Archivo de la Cineteca Nacional in Mexico City, the wonderful archives there have collected press clippings or, um, kind of cultural magazine articles or newspaper supplement articles written about Mexican films, And for most of the ones that I study, there's a few or press um, releases for when Maria Candelaria was re-released several decades after like kind of remastered when the original film was found. Uh, For El Crimen del Padre Amaro, there were three giant folders. Um, So this film was very controversial when it came out. This film is about... One priest who's in charge of a group of local priests and this priest over the other priests um, does private baptisms for men involved in drug trafficking and for their families. And when he gets sick, he receives specialized medical attention from them. Like He gets a private helicopter that will take him to a hospital. And I assume that they're also paying his bills, although the film doesn't show that. Um, it also shows us a priest who abuses a young girl in his congregation and a priest who's involved in a rural campesino community, um, kind of like the comunidades eclesiales de base or Christian based communities uh, that were popular in Central America and in Brazil uh, in the 1970s and 80s. And it's that priest that is defrocked because of his leftism, not the priest involved very closely with drug trafficking or the priest who is a uh, The criminal, like Padre Amaro. Um, I think, uh, and this is what I was talking about in the book, um, the old priest who's in charge of these other guys is kind of like the pre, the institutional revolutionary party that controlled Mexico between uh, 1940 and 2000, perhaps 1934, depending, although it had a different name, there's a clear connection. Um, But because it had held this power for so many years where there'd be a different president, but the same political party manipulating elections and so on. Um, it was deeply corrupt, uh, very allied with unions that were funding, um, filmmakers, cultural sphere, um, also close alliances with people who also may have been involved in the sale of narcotics. Um, The young priest, Padre Amaro, is the newer face of neoliberal governments with better looking leaders who were well prepared to talk to the press, but were really just as bad or worse than their predecessors. Um, And the third option of leftism is getting totally sidelined and is the one that's seen as bad, even though in the film, at least, it's the one where a leader is actually trying to serve the community that he has been assigned to be the priest of. So this could be a commentary on a lot of problems in Mexico in the 1990s. So it could be on electoral corruption, which is well-documented in Mexico, uh, not only since the 1990s, but certainly then. um, It could also be a criticism of various left-leaning political parties um, for bowing out or accepting elections that were against them. Um, although I would say that happened later in like 2006. Um, so that is my reading uh, that the film is foreshadowing what's going to happen in Mexico. Um, it's worth noting also that the film was written by Vicente Leguero or the film script, uh, who's well known as a Catholic um screenwriter, novelist. Also, um, he wrote popular plays, uh, but they were very critical of the Catholic Church. Um, He wrote an adaptation of the Gospel of Luke to 1970s Mexico. um, And I think he was very um, saddened by the way that the official Catholic church in Mexico completely maligned any movement towards leftism or um, alliances with brighter Latin American theologies of liberation. So idea that the Christian message is specifically for poor people and privileges them um, called the option for the poor, that there were bishops in Mexico who were in favor of this, particularly in the States of Cuernavaca, and Chiapas, but they were completely shut down and shut out of um, holding any further power. And so it's also a criticism of that, that the Catholic church would prefer to mm, return to its pre-revolutionary close relationship with the state rather than um, returning to its central religious message or what this screenwriter in interviews um, has talked about as what he believes is the central message. Um, so I think that this film, because it's from the 1990s, is only showing a really small snippet of collusion between the church and the narco world. Um, but I would say in more recent decades, um, as church leaders are powerful men, like Catholic church leaders are powerful men in Mexico, um, and, people who make a lot of money on drug trafficking or people who make a lot of money on the security theater that we all subject ourselves to because of the supposed danger of drugs, um, that there is certainly more collusion and that this with like it's few hints at showing how men involved in drug trafficking are manipulating um, Catholic leaders, like doing favors and then expecting favors um, that it's a small snippet of what will happen in the following decades.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. Thank you very much, Rebecca Johnson, for this wonderful talk and also for your very informative book. I really enjoyed reading it. And also, you know, the interesting part is how you've covered such a widespread, spectrum of films and then put them in these chapterizations which are all your own and like I said very catchy titles Catholicism at its wit's end and (laughs) so thank you very much and I wish you all the best for the book as well and I suggest and recommend it to everyone here thank you very much